Hello and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, poet and playwright, Mark Anthony Rossi. In this, our third year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here is your host. Hi folks, and welcome back to Strength to be Human. I'm your host, Mark Anthony Rossi, poet and playwright. This is episode 198, classic spotlight series, Thoughts on Emily Dickerson. Now, I've been wanting to do a show about her for a little while now, but I had other people ahead of me on that because I'm closer to their material, and I grew up with them more, so I wanted to get those out of the way. But I always find her interesting and intriguing. But we learn more. As we study more about these folks, we learn a lot more. And as we go on to the show, you'll, you'll discover that in many, in many ways, Emily Dickerson, as much as she was brilliant and certainly so glad that she got out there and became one of our great American writers, um, probably made all the possible mistakes you could possibly make as a person and as a writer because of some of the issues that she had gone through her entire life. And we'll talk about those. And they, they do bear mention because, you know, if you can avoid some of these, I would uh, definitely uh, ask you to do so. Uh, it's not going to be every day that people go through the list of mistakes that she has made and still became uh, uh, famous and got her material out there. And she didn't do any of that by her own. In life or in death, so um, it, it's a, a, an incredible miracle in many ways. To be honest with you, all right. So let's talk a little bit about who she was, okay? And then we'll go from there. All right. So she is someone that was born in, in Amherst, Massachusetts. Uh, she was born in one of the more wealthier families. I think if, if you remember, we mentioned before, so many of the American writers uh, w- were born this way. So it's not unusual, mainly because of. Uh, Education and access, although in her situation, she could have had the access. She just didn't want it. But she definitely had the wealthy family, and she definitely uh, had the education. Okay, she studied for in Amherst Academy. Uh, for a little while, she actually attended a, a female seminary, but she went back to her, to her house and stayed there for the rest of her life. Okay? Now, we know a lot about her mental state from not only some of her poems, but also just like Edgar Allan Poe and many other writers, oftentimes you get an idea about their character, their behavior, or, or the eccentricities because of all the people who have been in contact with them that report that. And in um, Mrs. Dickerson's case, she didn't have a lot of physical contact with people. She just, some people who visited the house and, you know, the family obviously had friends and patrons and all kinds of stuff. You know, she visited them now and then uh, and, and talked with them, but she never really ventured very much outside the house. Most of her correspondence, um, excuse me, most of her communication was through correspondence, hundreds and hundreds of letters to various people who would, she talked a little bit about the writing, a little bit about her life and, the few times that she did venture out while she was in school, almost everybody reported that she had a, a lot of unusual uh, habits. Uh, she worked to wear white clothing all the time. She seemed to be OCB, you know, excessive, you know, manic disorder. She might have pretty much been a manic depressive from with a lot of the writing, a lot of people reporting. Okay. 
They said she was extremely eccentric and uh, didn't even often communicate. Now, Emily Dickinson is a little different than, let's say, um, Edgar Allan Poe. We remember Poe for the gothic, the dark tone of his writing. For some reason, Emily Dickinson, for some reason, people forget. I don't know if it's because they didn't read her enough or they just get trapped in the fact that she seems to be a quaint, you know, cute, nice lady that didn't leave the house any much and turns out to be a literary genius. Uh, forgetting that, I mean, she left nearly 1,800 poems, and we'll talk about that you know, during the show here, of course, but most of them had some slant on death. Or immortality, or sometimes both of these topics. Now, I'm not saying they all do. I mean, a lot of them explore society, nature, and even spirituality. But yeah, unusual uh, for someone like that to be talking about death a lot. But when you have a mental illness, there's a good chance this woman was a manic depressive. Well, it's not a common thing. Sometimes these thoughts uh, can lead to a suicide. In her case, it did not. Thank God. But um. It, they're not uncommon in her condition, period. Now, like I was mentioning before, uh, she was very prolific. She wind up dying, and we'll talk about that. Um, 1,800 poems she left behind that they found, fully formed, ready to go. Um, there was only 10 poems of the 1,800 that ever published. She published a few early on in her life anonymously, without, without her name. And then there's been a few that were published by her friends and family anonymously without even telling her. But altogether, we know of only 10. So she really didn't care very much about publication. It just wasn't part of uh, what she wanted to do. For whatever reason, who really knows? It, it's almost like, uh, you know, J.D. Salinger from The Catcher in the Ride. They just isolate themselves and they don't want to know nothing and that's that. Okay? Now, she's really well-known because her style is different than most, okay? She didn't always fit the conventional poetic rules at all. Many times she uses a slant rhyme instead of a pure rhyme and, and usually don't even have titles in a lot of her poems. She never really likes to mess with capitalization too much, and if she does, it's always in an unusual fashion. And the same thing with punctuation. So she, she really had her own style. She was really obviously exploring. She wasn't just sitting there like documenting, I don't know, whatever life she has. And I'm not meaning to make fun of the woman. Uh, but, you know, you, you live in a house for 50-something years. You don't go out very much and other than correspondence and an occasional visitor. I don't know how you call that life. I mean, her writing was her life, so I guess you could say that was her life. But beyond that, I mean, you got me. I'm... I'm still amazed by the kind of life she had because it's so uh, restricted and, it, and it's so closeted, so to speak. You know, um, we do know that um, she had a, a a romantic relationship with one of her um, her father's older friends. So most likely, it was something of a, of a sexual romantic nature. She made some mention of it in her poems, even to the point of uh, you know wondering if this is the person she should marry kind of difficult because I think he was married <laughs> but um, that, didn't, that never really uh, came about uh, Miss Dickinson never married uh, which is you know not surprising when you don't get out of the house very much hard to not to make too many jokes on that because I don't want to but this is just one of the horrible facts of her life it's um, 
not circulating very much, certainly not using the network that her wealthier family could easily have established or the ones that was already existing. Um, not using anything uh, at all. I mean, other than a couple of friends she had and her sister-in-law who helped check out some of her poems. I think it was like about 200 poems that her sister-in-law helped um, either edit or give agreement on or, or give this comment on. And I know we know about five of them that had her sister Susan's name in there, which uh, an incredible controversy happened because later on when she died, to get her material together, to put together her first book, she winds up getting it edited, and they wind up editing out Susan and a number of some personal references. It was only until, I think, the late, the late 70s that they fully put out all of Dickinson's works without any edits at all, so you could see exactly what she was intending. That same thing in many ways happened to uh, Charles Bukowski, where they, they just made a lot of ridiculous edits. And then later on, they, and I think they still put on some volumes of his work that hasn't been edited. They had to restore everything. To her, they had to do the same thing. Uh, there's a lot of dedication she has in there as well. So, I mean, I don't really understand why would somebody want to do this. I don't really understand that at all. I mean, because the truth is the truth. Okay. No, she wasn't a virgin, even though she never got married. Uh, yeah, she did have some contact with people, even though it was mostly correspondence or a couple of family and friend members that there happened to be in the house or visiting the house. She wasn't totally isolated, you know. A lot of it, of course, was what she wanted to do, but she did had she did have some communication. She did get some feedback from people, so she wasn't completely, you know, uh, stuck in into that whole. Um, you know, I don't care about anybody. In fact, there really isn't a lot in her correspondence or in her conversations with people or even her poetry that suggested that, you know, she hated the world or she hated other people or she even hated herself. There isn't anything about that at all. So it definitely strikes you again as somebody that's dealing with some kind of manic depressive because... She might not even understand half the times why she was so melancholy. It, it might have that whole neurochemical situation going on over there. Because even though she writes about death and, and, and immortality and spirituality, these are things I think she's wanted to understand and, and, and to explore in her writing and maybe even in her thought frame. Maybe the things that came to her mind, you know, she wanted to check them out. She wasn't a, a, an excessively negative person. And even though she was, uh, and to many people who visited painfully shy and didn't even comment whether they were in the house or not, it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, she was some, you know, ogre running around, uh, not caring. Apparently she did have a lot of, uh, compassion and feeling about a number of things. But the personal contact and, and being around people, that simply wasn't what she was all about. All right, now. Here we go. All right, so let's talk a little bit about first. It's a it's a theory. We don't really know for sure. Okay, I think there's a couple of things we can rule out. Okay, and one of the things I don't like sometimes about writers, especially when they're excessively famous or they have almost like a legend, like Emily Dickinson, you get all these people that come out of the woodwork and they say crazy things. Right now, there's this, there's this theory that's been around for like 25 years that says, oh, no, no, she wasn't depressive at all. Uh, she was, she didn't want to go out and, and experience the world because she had epilepsy. And then they pull a couple lines from one of their poems that could go 78 different directions and say, yeah, she had epilepsy. Here we go. 
You know, I, I think it's a bunch of baloney because uh, remember, she wasn't totally isolated from public until she became later into a, a young adult and went from there. So she was around the public and, and other people for a good 10 years of her education. You're going to tell me somehow she hid an epileptic fit uh, from her teachers or classmates or her friends for 10 years? No. It's doubtful, okay? Second of all, people who have epilepsy, they don't tend to be that shy. Remember, one of the greatest uh, intellects, uh, rulers, and military uh, master statesmen, Julius Caesar, had epilepsy. He had a couple of close people around him to help hit it. But other than that, he was out there in battle. He was out there, you know, making love to women. He was out there you know, ruling Rome. He was doing all kinds of stuff. And he had epilepsy. Okay, and there's plenty of other people that did too. So uh, not only do I see no real evidence of this, both anecdotal from the people that, that, that surrounded her for a while, or even any of her letters don't even mention it at all, because they would have. Um, there's nothing in her poems, I said, except for a couple lines from somebody. It doesn't make a lot of sense. I, I'm bothered by mainly because of this. We can't really have the full measure of the person unless we know everything. And when you try to make somebody into a saint, you, you wind up taking things from them, including some of their humanity. Remember, you got people out here still thinking that, oh yeah, she's like a saint, she's a virgin, when, when we, we find out she's not. So if she had an affair with a married man, it happens. It doesn't make her like bound for hell, but again, it, it kind of gives you an idea that that was another glimpse into the world for her. And, and she took advantage of that, bearing in mind some of the restrictions she dealt with socially because probably her mental illness. All right? Uh, and also, I don't like the, the, the fact that when people try to thrust the sainthood on people, they don't really ever come up with the right, the right reasons, the right conclusions. It just seems like it's an overly protective measure that doesn't really help us. Okay? We're adults. We're writers. Don't protect us from the truth. We're supposed to be about the truth. And it's just sad that you got writers that want to talk about the truth all day long, and then they come up to Emily Dixon. Yeah, she had epilepsy. Really shy, painfully shy. Yeah, and a hell of a virgin, but what incredible writer. Okay, have a good day. Bye. That, I mean, it's ridiculous. Let's try not to do that to people and, and, and take some of humanity away from her. Mistakes or not, she was human. Let's let her make those. They did the, the same thing for a long time with Martin Luther King. We, we remember his greatness and his writing. We remember his, his preaching and his speaking. We remember his marching and all the things he did to try to make America better and, and try to help uh, the black Americans get back to where they're supposed to be at in terms of a state of equality. You know, and, and it turns out, unfortunately, he had a, a number of uh, extramarital affairs. Who knows the pressure of someone always wanting to kill you and all the pressure of going to jail and everything else, what that does to a man out there. Hard to know. But in the scheme of all these things, it helps you understand who he is. But yeah, people for a long time just didn't want that to go out and denied it and everything. No, we can't do that. He's a saint. God bless him. He's a great man, but none of us are saints. It's the same thing with Emily Dickinson. So try to avoid that sort of nonsense because it doesn't help anyone. It certainly doesn't help her and it really doesn't help us understand her as much as we can or much as we're able to but when we have these little facts we're not putting these out as some kind of scandal ha 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 emily uh, you know was hanging out with this guy no we're not doing that at all we're adults but it, it lets us understand a little bit more about her 
what she was willing to do, what she was willing to explore, what her common needs were, what, what the basic things we all know about humans. Doesn't mean that because she had such social restrictions, she wasn't interested in these things. Apparently she was. All right, now there's a number of poems that are, that are, that are pretty popular. I'm going to read one of them, but I'll, I'll talk a little bit about a couple others. We now have to read everything. Okay, we don't want to, we don't want to go that far here. All right. Here's a poem that I've always liked. It's called, I Taste a Liquor Never Brewed. Now, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting because it, it talks a little bit about, um, being an outsider. And, and of course, it shows that she really loved rhyme and, and, and some, some of her poems whenever she could. But she was a bit of a, you know, a rebel and a maverick in many ways that way. You know, and, and, and she liked the, um, you know, using uh, using the terminology like "rats upon the Rhine," which is you know still in Germany, of course. And she really, really, in, in many ways, it was almost like she was just fantasizing about going over to one of those vintage farms and, and, and plucking up some grapes and you know drinking some wine and, and having a good time. And you know, and, and she's really telling us, and again with her exclusion, she's telling us, "I taste the liquor never brewed." So she has to go beyond, you know, um, just imagining because she didn't taste it. But she tasted it because it's never been brewed. It's, it's in her mind, therefore in her, in her taste buds. It's all a dream. It's all that, uh, all that fantasy. And this is what you have to do when you're somebody that's cloistered like that. Is, is you have to, like, many ways extremely project your imagination and and that's definitely what she did in that it's a, it's a great line and uh, there's a lot of great lines in this woman that's what makes her such an interesting poet even if she was a a, a strange individual but um we see more when we learn her writing how much more human she was so we don't have to make her into this uh, some weirdo i always thought of her as a bit of a weirdo for a long time and the more I read her work and the more, you know, I checked out what she was doing, the more I understood a little bit more about her and, and appreciated her and didn't think she was such a weirdo. An eccentric, yes. I mean, hanging out in your house for 50 years, is, you, you can't call that normal behavior. But uh, I, I, don't, I don't think she was that weird. She was just brilliant. All right, next one. Success is counted sweetest. I always like to... Uh, some of her titles, you know, I'm pretty much a fanatic about titles, and uh, Dickinson really had some cool, interesting titles. All right, this is one of uh, one of the one of the poems that really made her famous when they produced her first book after she died, four years after her di after she died. Okay, she has a lot of interesting like aphorisms in there. Those are like those cute little sayings that that have some wisdom in them. You know, almost like uh, uh, the proverbs from Solomon in the Bible. I really like that. Okay, she wound up getting this poem while she was still alive, published in in, in, in an anthology, um, uh, you know, anonymously. So that that's kind of cool, and I really like that. It just really, really, in my opinion, tells you a lot about her. Okay, because in many ways, she um, is talking about bees and she's talking about fame and she's talking about some of the things that she kind of like feared about and it might give you some idea about why she didn't want to get published so much that she thought that and, and I know this sounds strange but she thought that in many ways more exposure of her work would sort of like erode her talent 
or, or maybe hurt her personality or maybe even just devalue some of her ideas and stuff. So she felt in many ways uh, the sting of that. And it's part of what she believed. Whether that was real or imagined, I can't tell you. I can tell you, though, that it's apparent in that poem that she was having those sort of thoughts. All right, another cool title. I felt the funeral in my brain. <laughs> it's really great because in many ways, unlike all the other titles, which I really love, uh, this one feels the most like it's from the 1970s. You know, it, it just feels modern, even though it was written more than a hundred and something years ago. It just, it, it's just, it's a very well known one. It also tells you in many, many aspects, which I feel is closer to evidence than that other net we're talking about, you know, epilepsy, is there's so much about mental health in this poem. There really is. The way it ends, which is a nice positive way for a change. Okay? And, in many ways, this is also a poem where they talked about some of the lines could be referring to epilepsy. But what we do know is that she had a nephew named Ned who really was epileptic. So she could be just referring to that person. Whether she had it or not, it's really doubtful. Uh, we do know that she had one of those agoraphobic tendencies. She just wanted to, you know, not touch people and just stay away from things. All right? And we also know that in many ways she uses a lot of a lot of words in the in the poem itself that leads you to think that she does have mental illness, that she's feeling the walls closing in, so to speak, that she's just ready to for a plunge, not necessarily suicidal, just something psychological. Uh, words uh, like trend and beak and beat and creak, just hard-edged words that don't have a lot of softness to them, don't have a lot of flexibility uh, to them at all. Uh, hard words. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great poem, uh, uh, certainly a, a great title. You know, if, if you were to put poems of mental illness of, something, of some sort in a category of like a top ten, this would definitely be in there, you know. Probably like, for my book, probably like top two. I mean, uh, of, of the top ten, probably be number two. Okay, I really, I think, uh, only, uh, believe it or not, I, I still put uh, The Raven as number one on all poems written, and definitely uh, a poem that talks a lot about mental illness. People don't catch that, but to me, it's number one on that list. This is number two, and that woman is something else. All right, this is her most famous poem of all. Lots of times when people are in these um, courses uh, about creative writing or, or even just a basic literature course and everything, they're going to you know, spruce here and there a couple of writers, and they're always going to have, like, you know, if you were to go a little bit into Poe, you might hear about the Raven and maybe Telltale Heart. You know what I mean? You listen to uh, about uh, Hawthorne, you know, they're probably going to talk about the Scarlet Letter. Everybody has a couple of marquee things that when you're going through a list of stuff that people are going to bring out. It's almost like the tourist, you know, way of going about literature. Well, this will be right here. Hope is the thing with feathers. This is her most famous poem. It's also considered her most positive poem. This is the poem that you're going to hear about the most. Okay. It has a lot of unusual inverted commas in it, so she does a lot of really weird structural things with it. We don't really know why. We know that she had a lot of uh, influence from uh, Emily uh, Bronte, that's for sure. And in many instances, she wanted to make the poem more life-affirming, which I know it's 
unusual to have to say, uh, but a lot of her poems weren't exactly life-affirming. There wasn't like complete death and negative, okay? A lot of them were about explorations or investigations or even, in many instances, you know, a, a, a confession of sorts. But uh, there wasn't a lot that were life-affirming. This one definitely was. So it was a, a real, real positive one. And we're going to read it here because it's definitely one of my favorites. And I'm happy to see that she had something positive to say once in a while. You know, it, it can get it can get a lot on everybody for the, to listen to all the doom and the gloom. All right, Hope is the Thing with Feathers, all right, by Emily Dickerson. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard, and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept many so warm. I've heard it in the chillest land, and I'm on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it exed a crumb of me. So it's really, it's really fabulous. It's short, but it, it's a really a, a brilliant piece of work. I don't know why some of the greatest poems ever written had some connection to birds. <laughs> you know, the raven is a raven, and this thing is some other kind of strange... You know, a bird, uh, it doesn't really say what kind of bird it is. Uh, it's a little bird. It perches. I mean, that could be anything. But um, it's nice to see that uh, through all the stuff that she went through, uh, she did have a, a sense of positiveness and even a bit of sense of humor. And that, that really is, in my opinion, a, a, a really a wonderful and, and, and great poem to, to talk about uh, with, with her. Okay? Now, the first time that her work gets actually unaltered and, and corrected, removing all the uh, the addition, the uh, the edits, the wrongful edits, was in 1955. It's called "The Poems of Emily Dickinson," and it's really the one that many people uh, refer to this to this day. You'll see all the. Um, Dedications to Susan or poems that had Susan's name in it in there again. All the dedications she has to uh, to somebody named uh, uh, Todd. Uh, these personal acquaintances. She had a couple of friends, and, and there were some uh, references to them. I think many occasions these are people that she did a lot of, of the correspondence with. I mean, Emily Dickinson was a serious correspondent, and I guess you have to be if you still want to communicate. But you don't want to be around people. You're going to do a lot of letters. And and she did hundreds and hundreds of letters. I think they published a couple of volumes of them. So you, you can see how much of an active imagination that that she had. And, and, and the things that she was interested in. So she, even though she might have been stuck in a house, you know, uh, and even though she didn't have uh, a husband or, or children to attend to or all that sort of stuff, which probably gave her all the time to write all this stuff. 1,800 poems is a lot, if you think about it. Um, in many instances, I feel that she might not have been a complete person in terms of because of some of that, you know, disconnection from the, from the social atmosphere of things and, and maybe even from the world to a certain extent. It doesn't mean that she was that cut off from what was going on. You know, mental illness, sure, but uh, it doesn't seem like it made her completely detached from reality. I, I don't even think it, it, it detached her very much at all. She seems to have a, a pretty stable and, 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 and matter-of-fact mind. It didn't seem to be 
uh, seeing demons and, and spirits and, and the monsters in her bedroom or anything like that. She seemed to be pretty pretty normal in that fashion. It's just that it was the people that, uh, that, that got her. So we don't really know why that's the case. We really don't know why. Uh, if you ever seen any photographs of her, she's not somebody that's unattractive. Uh, certainly not somebody that's carrying some kind of disfigurement or some kind of disablement that would cause her to, to be shy or want to stray away from people or something. She didn't have any of that. She didn't have any real illnesses. In fact, when she died, she died from a heart problem. And, of course, her heart problem came from hypertension. Again, another clear sign of mental illness. If you know anything about mental illness, when people go through the motions of the internalization that happens with uh, mental illness, particularly women, they're more internalized than men do. It, it raises your blood pressure. And you continue that for a long period of time, you know, it's going to eventually disrupt your heart and kill you. And that's what happened to this poor man, woman. So it, it's another another clear medical sign of of the, of the mental illness she had. But as we talked about before on this show many times, and I'm sure I'll talk about it many times in the future, mental illness is about 40% of the literary or artistic community. And it certainly isn't any barrier to write and, and, and make note of things that are going on and, and connect with people. Uh, but she is the most interesting of all writers because these are the mistakes that you shouldn't make. You should be networking. You should be talking to other people. You should be contacting individuals. You should be having some kind of life. It doesn't necessarily have to be marriage, but whether it's a, a physical or other kind of um, platonic relationships or something that requires a contact, very little of that for her. You know, you should be sending your writing out there. She barely did any of that. You know, it all happened later on, and she was just fortunate that people... You know, found her stuff and decided to send it out there, and, and people had seen uh, how great it is. But that's not going to happen to the people these days. They wind up probably selling the house and throwing everything in the garbage. So let's not do any of those kind of mistakes, please. Let's not go anywhere near that. Mental illness or not, there's so much we can achieve now uh, through uh, through therapy, through writing as a therapy. Uh, through uh, certain medications, m meditation itself, things like yoga, exercise. There's so many things we can do to help, you know, uh, control or at least uh, manage it. Because, you know, mental illness is not curable at this time. And uh, it certainly is not going to weigh just because you don't want to have it in your life. So you got to manage and deal with it just like diabetes or anything else that could be a pain in the butt but that you can still live and have a life and do things. It's just so incredibly ironic, cosmically ironic, that as a writer, you need to connect with people. And in many instances, she didn't let her writing, meaning her poetry, do the connection. It's like she just didn't care about that. She wound up connecting with people through correspondence. That's the kind of writing that she used to connect with people. All the other stuff, that's for us now. Now we connect. It's too late, of course, You know, more than 100 years later. But hey, like I said, none of that stuff is normal. None of that stuff is, is the normal precedence, the way things go. It's all out of sequence. It's all um, uh, unusual. But that makes her so extraordinary, unique, and, and such a, a brilliant mind and, and, and talent that uh, we need to continue to revere her. Of course, it is important to understand that as a, a female, 
some of her interesting perspectives. Um, whether her closetness or, or cloisteredness or monastery-like habits did some kind of effect on her her femality, or excuse me, her her femaleness, and and that in many ways, you know, altered some of her uh, perceptions, or maybe her writings. We're not really going to know, but what we do know is that she didn't forget to be a woman, and she didn't forget to be a female, and she understood what that meant. And her writing made it pretty clear. So again, uh, mental illness or not, she she had a good picture of what was going on, and that that makes her in many ways an important person to read. Just because we might learn something more about ourselves by reading Emily Dickinson. All right, folks. Until next time, this is Strength to Be Human. I'm your host, Mark Anthony Rossi. That was episode. 198, the Classic Spotlight Series, uh, Thoughts on Emily Dickerson. Until, folks, until next time, God bless and take care. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.